I mentioned last time that chapter 12 brings us to a critical turning point in the ministry of Jesus. His public ministry is coming to a close, and we can sense that Jesus knew that that hour had come. We pointed out the the divisions of this gospel that chapters 1 to 12 have been aptly named the book of signs because they mostly focus on the signs that Jesus did and the response to those signs. But then chapters 13 to 21, they have been called the book of glory because they focus on Jesus' passion. We will find Jesus in the upper room. We will We will find his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, his trial, his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. And chapter 12 is really transitioning us from the book of signs to the book of glory. We looked last time at the different responses that are highlighted and contrasted for us here. We we saw the responses of Mary and Judas contrasted. We saw Mary's lavish display of costly love contrasted with the unbelieving traitor's sinister response to Jesus. In verses 12 to 19, we thought about the fickle, false devotion of the crowd who in the end praised Jesus of their own imagination. And we thought a little bit last time about these Greeks who simply wished to see Jesus and how that was a signal to Jesus that his hour had come. This morning I want to to think about the, the response of these Greeks and the contrast with the response of the Jews at the end of the chapter. And I want to do so under the theme of the danger of spiritual procrastination. But before we do that and look at that contrast, I want, I want to highlight something that I, I really think shows the great love of Christ for sinners that shows that our Savior is is not cold and and uninvolved with us, that he has joy when sinners come to him. And we need to remember, and I think maybe this is our error as Reformed Christians, is we we react against those who say, well, Jesus was just a man. And so we emphasize his divinity as we should, but we do so to the neglect of his humanity. We should not shy away from the fact that Jesus was a man. The scriptures do not shy away from that. In fact, the book of Hebrews really presents the humanity of Jesus, presents the glory of it and the benefit of it to us. Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. And here he stands. His public ministry is coming to an end, and in a few days he will be crucified. He's going to be 
abandoned by his followers. He's going to be arrested and he's going to die alone on Calvary. And he's very aware of this. And it was an enormous burden upon him. It comes through in verse 27 when he says, Now is my soul troubled. This is the same word he used at the grave of Lazarus. It means he was deeply moved. He was troubled. He was agitated. He was entering the shadow of the cross and it was clearly weighing heavily on him. And friends, in our sinful humanity, we cannot comprehend the enormous burden and weight that our Savior carried for us. He knew that he was going to be forsaken by his father, abandoned by his friends, rejected by his own people, these people that had heard so much from him and still did not believe. He carried the burden of knowing that he would bear our iniquity. But he also, and it comes out in this chapter, he also bears the burden of the unbelief of so many. We saw last time how as these Greeks have this desire to see him that it seemed to be an, a timely encouragement from his father. Jesus knew what the scriptures said that his father had chosen a people from all nations, tribes, and tongues to be his bride. And, and now here is a down payment of that. A down payment of what his death and resurrection would accomplish. And Jesus derives hope from it. When, when this message is delivered to Jesus about the Greeks and their simple desire to see him, Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus is bearing this enormous burden, but can you sense the resolve, even as he talks about his impending death? The, the resolve that he has, he knows that he has to die and be buried for there to be fruit from all nations. And then after that, the, the father follows up with really a confirmation of Jesus' message. When Jesus says that his soul is troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Then he says, Father, glorify your name. And the father responds with an audible voice. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The father is saying, I have glorified my name. My name has been glorified in the earthly ministry of my son, in his obedience, in, in his role as the perfect prophet. Did you catch that in this chapter that 
Jesus has a commandment what to say and what to speak, and it comes from his Father. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. And we see that here. The cross weighed heavily on the Lord. We can sense how troubled his soul is, and yet... The Father is setting before him the joy that lay ahead. The Father gives a preview of what his work would accomplish. And friends, we can see, I think, in this, the great love of Christ for sinners. He knew what was coming. And yet he willingly walked that path and he knew our name. And he died for our sins willingly. And again, it reminds us that, friends, Jesus is not some cold, emotionless, uninvolved Savior. He finds great joy when sinners come to him and trust him for salvation. He finds great joy when sinners like us come to him and confess our sin and say, Lord, restore me. He rejoices at that. He loves when sinners come to him and cast themselves on him. There's another side to this. Because while faith moves Christ to joy, unbelief moves him to grief and sorrow. You may remember in Luke's gospel, in the parallel account to this chapter, we are told that during the triumphal entry, Jesus paused, and what did he do? He wept over that unbelieving city of Jerusalem. He said, when he, it says, when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you... Even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Our Savior is fully God, but he is also fully man. And just as true belief moves him to joy, He doesn't just look at unbelief and say, oh, well, my father didn't choose those people. Oh, well, but he's moved to grief. So let's briefly consider the response of these Greeks and their urgent desire to see Jesus. We thought a bit about this last time, these were God-fearers. They worshiped the God of Israel. And it makes sense that they come and find Philip because Philip was a Greek name. And it seems Philip didn't know what to do, so he went to Andrew, and then Andrew brings the message to Jesus. And the simple request is, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, we thought about the fact that this This is a significant request from the standpoint of 
of Jesus being encouraged by seeing the nations coming to him. But it's significant for another reason. And we need to note here that Jesus' response to this desire indicates that this must have been genuine belief in him. Because there's this contrast with the other people in this chapter where we're given, we're given their motives. Verse 18, we're told that the crowd came because they heard about the sign of the raising of Lazarus. Verse 37, we're told that they, though they saw so many signs, they still did not believe in him. So here are these people who saw the signs, they, they heard about them, they heard Jesus teach, but they never really saw Jesus with the eyes of faith. And yet notice the contrast here. Here are these Greeks who probably didn't see the signs, but with much less evidence they come to Christ and their simple desire is him. They weren't fascinated. They weren't intrigued. They weren't thrill seekers. They didn't want to see Jesus do something cool. They weren't asking, what can Jesus do for me? Their simple desire was to see Jesus, their Lord and Savior. And friends, this reminds us that of what our aim and our desire should be. We have many needs in this life, and it's right for us to pray to the Lord and, and to ask him to grant those needs. But at the same time, this warns us of the danger of, of losing sight of the benefactor and focusing on the benefits that he gives us. Of of focusing our attentions on the gifts we can get and, and losing sight of the great giver of those gifts, Jesus. The simple desire, we want to see Jesus. But their response is then contrasted with the response of the Jews towards the end of the chapter. And in their response, we we have this sobering warning about the danger of procrastinating Jesus. The danger of procrastinating Jesus. I think we all know what that, what that is, what procrastination is, and we're all very good at it at various areas of our lives. But Merriam-Webster says that procrastination means to put off intentionally and habitually. And then they add, it is a blameworthy delay. You see, while these Greeks who had not had the privilege and the benefits that these Jews had, they come to him. The, but these Jews who saw all that he had done, who heard his teaching, are still disbelieving. And we see that some of them hate Jesus and want him dead. While others, we learn, believe that he was the Christ, but they would not entrust him, themselves to him because 
They loved the glory of men rather than the glory of God. We're told in verses 42 to 43, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they might not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now again, this was not something that Jesus just took in stride and said, oh well, they didn't believe. He was deeply grieved at their unbelief. He wept over their unbelief. And there are these tones of grief in this chapter, and we see his profound sorrow at unbelief. Listen to what he says, the urgent call he gives in verses 35 and 36. He said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Now what, what John means there, what he says in verse 37, is what follows after he had said that, he had then hid himself from them. Now, theologians throughout history have, have sort of defined saving faith using three terms. Knowledge, assent, and trust. What do we need to be saved? We need to have knowledge of gospel facts. We need to know what the gospel is. But that does us no good if we don't assent that it is indeed true. Assent is saying yes, this is true. It is true for me. I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe I'm a sinner. But those mean nothing without that last critical component of trust. A wholehearted trust in the Savior. And you'll, you'll notice here that these Pharisees who hated Jesus had knowledge. They had knowledge of the truth. But the other group, the ones who it says they believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. Well, their unbelief is actually worse because they had knowledge and assent. They believed that Jesus was the Christ, but they refused to place their trust in him. And as we think about this character of unbelief, specifically this danger of putting Christ off, of procrastinating, Jesus warns that there comes a time when the spiritual procrastinator has their eyes blinded forever. And we need to remember that the vast majority of the people in the Gospels who saw Christ, who 
who heard him, who saw his miracles. And, and you'll, you'll notice like th- there's this tone of, yeah, you, you've showed us some good stuff. Show us more. Tell us more. They always wanted something more. And that allowed them to delay on making a decision regarding Jesus Christ. And there can be a parallel with us. We, like these people, we are religious people. We are under the means of grace. We, we see, we hear Jesus through his word. And yet the warning is that we can be so near to Jesus and yet be hardening our hearts in unbelief against him. And I I would add, I think we need to let this reality inform our evangelism. I'll, I'll say more on that in a moment, but we should approach our evangelism with the same sense of urgency that we find from Jesus in this chapter. And I want us to think about the the danger of spiritual procrastination and how it can be subtle and and sinister. And the first thing that's emphasized here that persistent unbelief involves a progressive experiential hardening. In verse 35, Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk in the light while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. Jesus, the light, was with them. And yet the darkness of unbelief was already in their hearts, and Jesus' warning is to believe before the darkness overtakes you. And this teaches us that putting Jesus off That that doesn't put us in some kind of holding pattern. It doesn't put us in spiritual neutral or spiritual park. Jesus is saying, while you are putting me off and procrastinating, darkness is threatening to overtake you. It's further underlined in verse 37 where John says, though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. And the verb believe is in the imperfect tense, meaning we could translate it, they were still not believing in him. In other words, it was an ongoing pattern in their life. Putting Jesus off, procrastinating, waiting until tomorrow to trust him. Asking for a little bit more from him before I I commit myself to you. And Jesus warns that this puts us in a downward pattern of unbelief and hardness of heart. That is the significance of the passages we read from Psalm 95 where the urgent call is today. If you hear his voice, respond to him today. 
related and perhaps even more sobering is that persistent unbelief leads to a judicial hardening. A judicial hardening. In other words, God may judge persistent unbelief and make it so a person can't believe. God can make it so those who won't believe can't believe. Look at verses 38 and following where John cites from Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6. He said, this took place so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he, to, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Before the flood, God said that his spirit would not always strive with man. And that principle remains. We can't presume that God's Spirit will always strive with us. There comes a time when the Lord judges persistent unbelief, when he blinds eyes, he hardens hearts, he closes ears and gives the unbeliever exactly what they want. There was one commentator that said the the most frightening judgment is when God gives sinners exactly what they want. Simon Kistemacher, writing on this, said, When people of their own accord, and after repeated threats and promises, reject Jesus and spurn his messages, then, and not until then, he hardens them, in order that those who were not willing to repent may not be able to repent. And friends, I believe that we need to take this warning to heart and let it impact our evangelism. Are you procrastinating evangelizing someone today? Is there someone in your life that you know you need to share the gospel with them. And yet you keep saying another time. There could be many reasons for that. Maybe we're afraid of the cost. Maybe we're afraid of, of losing that relationship. But here we are warned that there may not be another time. We need to let our evangelism reflect the same urgency, the same clarity, the same directness that we find from Jesus here. Now Jesus closes out this chapter with one final sermon. And again, it was after he said these words that he hid himself from them. But he cried out. You'll, you'll notice 
In verse 44, it says he cried out, and those occasions are rare. We don't read of Jesus crying out, and so when he cries out, we know that this is of the utmost importance. If you just look at those verses, verses 45 to the end of the chapter, he emphasizes the true living faith, trust in him as the mediator. He cried out and said, he who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. Knowing Christ means knowing the Father. Having the love of Christ means having the love of the Father. Receiving Christ means receiving the Father because they are one. In verse 46, he shows how he brings us from darkness to to the glorious light of his presence. He says, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Jesus wants us to know and experience the light of his presence. And in verses 47 to 50, he says that believing in him means everlasting life. He says, I know that his commandment is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. And friends, here we are reminded that even as Jesus is crying out to these hard-hearted people, as he preaches to them and urges them to come to him, he's saying, I want your best and highest good. And we need to remember that. That even when Jesus calls us to hard things, we need to hear him saying, I love you. I want your best and highest good. And when we're sharing the gospel with people, we need to present that Jesus. I mean, often people think uh, Jesus as a killjoy who, who wants to take away all these things from you. Our evangelism needs to reflect the Jesus who wants us to have joy, the Jesus who wants our best and highest good. Again, this, it's a sobering theme to think about. You read how after he had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. And that's, from here on out, that's very much what we see in this gospel. We find Jesus in chapter 13 alone in the upper room with the twelve. And then shortly after that, Judas is dismissed and it's just Jesus and the eleven disciples. Friends, all of us, even if we are believers, We need to heed the voice of Jesus today. And as believers, as his messengers, we need to let this urgency impact our evangelism and urge people today. Today is the day to believe and to trust in the Savior who is good and just and merciful and loving. Let's pray. Father, 
We thank you for your word, for it is true. Lord, may you sanctify us by it today. And for those of us who indeed belong to you today and have trusted in you, we, we know that we can often engage in spiritual procrastination, a sin that needs to be dealt with. Words that we need to heed, Lord, help us to hear your voice and respond today. Lord, and as your people, may we reflect this same urgency as we speak to people of the glory of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we remember that there might not be another time. So give us courage, give us boldness, give us a willingness to share the love of your Son with those who do not know him. And we pray that this all might be for his glory and his praise. We ask in his name.